The American Society of Retina Specialists is the largest organization of retina specialists in North America, representing thousands of physicians in all 50 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and more than 63 countries. Its size and influence have grown exponentially since its founding in 1982, making it a powerful national advocate and primary source of clinical and scientific information, along with education for its members. It does, in fact, represent all things retina. Today, you'll meet three extraordinary men, Jerry Bovino, Roy Levitt, and Alan Verne, lifelong friends and leading retina specialists who, in the early days of their careers, set out to create an open, inclusive, egalitarian organization to serve the ongoing professional, educational, and social needs of all fellowship-trained retina specialists. Through their sheer determination, courage, and initiative, the Vitreous Society, later renamed the American Society of Retina Specialists, was born. Welcome. You are the gentleman that made that happen. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about your story and, and the story of the society. So, Dr. Bovino, could you take us through your sort of approach to involvement in medicine and then ophthalmology and then retina? Sure. So I always wanted to be a physician. It was my dream since I was a little boy. I loved everything about the idea of helping people. And I uh, wound up going to college and majoring in biology. And then when I finished college, applied to medical school and went to Buffalo, where they gave me a scholarship. They were very nice. And then I went on to the do an internship in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. And then I did two years in the public health service, as I like to say, taking care of gonorrhea in merchant seamen, which is a very busy job at the time. And I applied for ophthalmology residencies. They were very difficult to get at the time, and I wasn't accepted. But I knew Alan was a resident at St. Luke's, Columbia. And Alan said that his program was expanding. So he told me about his chairman. He told his chairman, Jerry's a good guy. And uh, they got me an interview. And I said, is there anything I should know? He said, the chairman is a sailor. He's a big sailor. So I walked into the interview and I talked about jibing and tacking and jibs. And I was accepted. Dr. Levitt. Mine's a little different. I, I actually had always wanted to be a dentist. Uh, I had a family dentist that I, I looked up to and uh, went to college and pursued that, uh, that, that goal. And I ended up at Northwestern in Chicago in dental school. And serendipitously, the medical school taught most of the uh, first-year courses in dental school and threw a lot of medicine into it. And quite honestly, when later on we got into carving teeth out of chalk and uh, learning about the tensile strength of wire, uh, I said, mm, let me think about this. And it turned out that I had to totally reapply to get into med school. So I dropped out, uh, did reapply, got accepted to the University of Texas 
uh, medical school in Galveston. And um, the rest is, is history in a way. Uh, my last elective and um, my last year uh, was ophthalmology. And that piqued an interest and it stayed there. And after my internship, uh, in which I met somebody who knew the head of the program at St. Luke's at the residency program in New York, uh, put in a good word. I interviewed uh, while I was in the military in California at Camp Pendleton. Uh, I was a good Marine and uh, got accepted, came to New York and did my residency, did my fellowship in New York at Mount Sinai and um, went into practice in El Paso, Texas. Amazing. Okay, Dr. Vern, tell us your story. And then tell us how you guys, you, you guys all come together, which your your lives seem so intertwined. That's all true. Uh, let's see. Uh, my first exposure uh, really is I, I went with my mother. She had to go for a glaucoma check. I was maybe 10 years old. And I was waiting outside uh, in the waiting room for my mother. And she came out and she said, boy, that's a really good specialty. You might want to think about that. Subsequently, when I got to medical school, um, and you have to decide what you want to do, you want to do general medicine, you want to do surgery, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, I went to the various specialists, the, the, uh, the surgeons, the, the generalists, uh, the OBGYN, the pediatricians, and asked them, you know, did they like what they did? And they all loved what they did. But there was always a but. And I went to the ophthalmologist because I had a little bit of previous exposure. And the uh, ophthalmologist said, I love what I do and there's no buts. I subsequently went back. I went back to the, the, the pediatricians and the gynecologists and so on and said, what do you think of ophthalmology? They said, great specialty. I wish I would have done it. I said, hmm, that says something. So I ended up, you know, doing my, my internship and I applied for a residency. I had met uh, my my wife, Barbara, through, uh, and that's how I met Jerry, actually, originally. Uh, they were, they had gone, my wife is also a physician, and they had gone to medical school together. So she wanted me to meet Jerry, who was a close friend. I went to St. Luke's, and then obviously Jerry got into St. Luke's, you know, as a result of my, my association. And then Roy was uh, a resident a year ahead of me. And I met him uh, right after my first year, at the beginning of my first year. He actually met my sister first, and he can tell you that story, but he met her when he was taking the basic science course at Stanford, and he met my sister at Tiburon, where she was mooching off his lunch. We were having lunch at Tib in Tiburon, and uh, the salads came out, you know, and this woman sitting behind me leaned over and said, excuse me, is that salad any good? And I said, here, try it. And I handed it to her. And then a conversation started and she asked me, what do you do? Where, are you, where do you live? And I said, I'm living in New York right now. I'm doing a residency. She said, in what? I said, ophthalmology. She says, oh, my brother is starting a residency in ophthalmology. And I said, where? And she said, St. Luke's. And I said, I haven't met him, but I've met you. You're all in, in retina. Um, you all know each other. Talk me through how that first conversation about the Vitreous Society begins. Where are you and, and what, what takes place? I'd like to emphasize that even though the three of us all participated in this, we never would have gotten it done 
if it weren't the three of us working together, because we each were part of this tripod of trying to generate a new society. And I've told this story. I was in Monte Carlo at a surgical meeting, eye surgery, and I met another one of our colleagues who had started a new journal. And I told my wife, Esther, that he started a journal. And she said, what can you start? And we were all frustrated, all of us, because there was no open organization that would allow young retina and vitreous specialists to learn and teach with their colleagues. Because the Retina Society, the Macula Society, were fairly closed at the time. So I said, I don't know where I could start. And my wife said, well, why don't you start a, a Retina Society? I said, no, Charles Gabin says that. And the Macula Society, she said. And I said, no, Larry Singerman does that. And she said, well, who does the Vitreous Society? And I went, ah! So, but I didn't do anything. And I never could have moved past that light bulb until we were in Aspen at Poppy's Restaurant at the Aspen Retinal Detachment Society. And we were all sort of grousing, our, us and our wives, about the fact there was no meeting that would invite us because we were excluded. Well, let me just jump in for a second. Uh, the, the dinner at Popey's, one of, one of the reasons this subject came up at that dinner was because there was a retina meeting at Aspen at the time, and it was by invitation only. And Alan and I had invitations. Jerry did well, not. I wasn't invited. <laughs> Jerry was not, but Jerry was there skiing. That's because you didn't shower. <laughs> but anyway, as a retina surgeon, he figured, well, listen, I'm here. They're going to let me in. And they didn't. And so that's what prompted this discussion at dinner. And we all decided that we would like to form a society that was open to properly trained retina surgeons, uh, most of whom did most of the work, you know, across the country. Can I, can I just jump in here with one little aside is that, is that, I would, I'd like to stress the fact that nobody had anything to drink. Yeah. I, I, I no <laughs> okay. involved. In We're not going to buy that at all from the three of you, but, but good, good statement there, Alan. Okay. So keep going. Yeah. Anyway. And so we talked about it and then we said, let's just do this. And at the time, you know, the subject did come up, I believe, you know, among the three of us is what are other people going to think if, if we do this? But we decided, let's just do, let's just try this, and we divided up the um, the work. And since I had a brother-in-law that lived in Texas, and uh, who was an attorney, I could use him to set up a five hundred one c three and um, register the the Vitreous Society as an organization. And uh, Alan would come up with the initial certificates for charter members and Jerry would write some letters to people that we all picked that we thought would be good for membership. And then we went our, our own ways and uh, went back to El Paso and uh, it was registered in Texas. And because it was registered in Texas, uh, we set up the original office in my office and I had an office manager that was able to 
help run the society for almost 10 years, about which time it got too big for her to do both jobs. What happens when the three of you send out letters to invite people to a society they've never heard of before? The vast majority of people who were invited were thrilled because, to be candid, they didn't have another club to go to and they weren't invited. So all of a sudden, they thought this was fabulous. There were some people who we invited respectfully, elders, uh, professors in the profession, who were not thrilled about it. And they didn't think that we had the uh, permission to start a new organization. And Roy can tell you about that because he was in the lens of that attack. I remember one time I received a call from a very prominent head of one of the big programs in the country. I was told in no uncertain terms that if we went through with this, that we would be buried. And my comment was, I'm sorry you feel this way, but we're still going to go ahead with this. We feel it's a good idea. And anytime you feel you want to, you're still welcome to join. So what was it like for Dr. Markhamer to call you like that? How, how did I feel? I was concerned, um, but I felt, I felt confident that we were doing the right thing. We wanted an inclusive organization that would be run by its members for the benefit of patients around the world. And we thought that was a good thing. So we weren't intimidated that other people might not like the idea. You know, we thought it was a great thing for the patients and that ultimately is what we were doing. When you look back, guys, who 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 do you think were your early supporters um, that allowed this to continue as well as it did? Steve Charles, for sure. You know, most people don't know that Steve Charles is one of the most impressive people we all know in our specialty, and he's brilliant, okay? Steve Charles called me when he got the first letters that I sent out were to Steve Charles and Robert McAmer, asking them to think of serving as our two first presidents. Dr. McAmer didn't have any interest, but to his credit, years later, I met him for breakfast and he apologized to me and he said, you and Alan and Roy were right. I missed it. And he thanked us for the society. But Steve, from the first day, said, this is a great idea. We have a lot of people who want to be in an organization. And most of our members, our younger members, don't know that Steve in the early days had a hard time getting into the retina society because he was perceived to be the new guy on the block, even though he was inventing instruments, doing incredible things. He, he, he said, this is what we need. So I think Steve is right up there in the loop, Sandy Grizzard. Nick Zakoff was very helpful in doing bylaws. The first day the letters went out, Nick called me and he said, I didn't get a letter. And he was just, we just made a mistake. And I said, well, Nick, you're just the kind of guy we want because you're a worker. 
and I sent him a letter and a certificate. And the next thing you know, he's drawing up bylaws. We've had a lot of people. I can't mention them all. The three of you essentially were the first three presidents, which gave you that kind of oversight for the first three years of the society. It seems to me that that must have been very important also. You know, we had what we called historical organizational memory. We knew where we started and we wanted it to evolve, but we wanted to always sort of keep our hand on the tiller so that it would go to the main two reasons that I've spoken to the membership about before. And we never let that go. One, information wants to be free. The idea of closed meetings where we're going to limit the dissemination of medical knowledge was abhorrent to us. And two, respect for your colleagues never goes out of style. Take us through the first meeting of the Vitreous Society. What, what was that like for the three of you? We didn't know uh, about how to really run a meeting. We sent out um, invitations for papers. We sent out the certificates. We incurred the wrath of, of, of several people. But our first meeting was at Palm Springs. And we had about 50 people show up. And as people showed up, we didn't. We really had no clue as to what we were doing. So we realized that we had to have some kind of a, an opening reception, cocktail party, whatever. So immediately that, that day, the same day as people were showing up, we went to the kitchen and said, can you put something together for us? And they did. And we had a, uh, a cocktail party reception. People had submitted papers. And over the course of the next several days, we, we, people presented papers. And we had a business meeting and we, there was no self-aggrandizement. There, was, there were no in, uh, industry people. There were no booths or anything. The last night before the, the last uh, scientific session of the next day, but the last night there was a, uh, a dinner party and we served dinner to everybody with spouses and so on. I remember at the first meeting, it, the slide projector who ran the projector was my brother-in-law who set up the uh, society in Texas. Uh, he came to the meeting and he ran the projector. Um, I remember a meeting in St. Thomas where the hotel made a mistake and rented the room where the meeting was going to be to somebody else. And we had to scramble and we found an outdoor venue that we hung sheets from to isolate it from everything else. And we set up the slide projector and we had our meeting surrounded by sheets in St. Thomas, you know, you, ad you adapt uh, to the situation. I remember the first meeting we had a visual audiographer, photographer, who actually showed the slides. There were one or two speakers, and then Steve Charles got up. And Steve is talking a mile a minute, right? And he's going on about new things. We couldn't even process how smart he was. And he'd talk about pneumohydraulic reattachment and internal drainage and creating retinotomies. He was light years ahead of the garden variety retina specialist. And the, the 
a guy who was running the carousel or whatever, he didn't know a thing about medicine. He just looked over at me and said, wow, this guy's brilliant. <laughs> One of the things that we talked about and implemented in the first meeting was instead of, instead of having a, a day-long meeting, we were going to have a meeting last half a day and have the afternoon open for everybody to spend time at the pool or wherever to meet each other and to talk and not necessarily talk strictly medicine, but talk about uh, how you run a practice, how you, uh, some of the, some of the things that you have come up with that make your practice work better than uh, it had in the past. And that interchange was very important. Uh, the other change that we made that we talked about and implemented at the first meeting was a question and answer period after each lecture. People would, people would question certain items that were brought up during the lecture and uh, the speaker could answer that. And it was, that was also a good educational interchange. How did you guys manage to find such wonderful places year after year after year? Early on, a decision was made that we would actually have international members which obligated us uh, to, to have meetings outside of the continental U the U.S. But we looked for places that, that were enjoyable. We looked for, thing, for uh, activities that, that people enjoyed doing. Uh, Roy was uh, is really an advocate of all kinds of music. And at one meeting, he was able to get the drifters to be with the entertainment for the, for the final dinner. Uh, we, had a, we had meetings at Disneyland. We had meetings in Europe. We had meetings uh, in Rome, uh, in Paris, uh, New York. We and we would have meetings anywhere that where we could have a good social interaction, good good events that got people. And not only it, it was important for us to, that people should come and not just fly in and fly out. They would come with their spouses or significant other. Well, for the, those people that were in Rome, I think uh, they will never forget that meeting. So why don't you guys tell us why they will never forget that meeting? <laughs> Larry Avens, who was the president of the organization at the time, came into the, the reception hall in a chariot with live horses. And everybody at the meeting was dressed in a toga. And it was just a beautiful, wonderful kind of professional silliness that made everybody feel relaxed. Wait, 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 let me, let me, you left out a whole bunch of stuff on that meeting. Okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me just start out. First off, Kirk Paco was also involved with planning the meeting with me at that point. And Kirk Paco, as you know, is a Cecil B. DeMille type character. Together, we worked on the idea of what we're going to do. And the, the hotel presents packages. And this was at the Cavallari Hilton that sits on the top of a hill overlooking all of Rome. And when you checked in, spouses and, and, and the attendees got a toga. It was part of your registration fee. It was all included. And you got the toga. And on the last night, you put the toga on. And there were some people, some professors, some of whom also were uh, critical of our forming the society, now we obviously got, got into it. They took the drapes off the curtains in their room, right, and wrapped them around as sashes. And so they came down and they looked like, something. You got in the elevator, you went up to the top floor, to the terrace on the top floor of the Cavallari Hilton, 
as you left, exited the elevator and got, walked into the terrace, you had Roman centurions with these big, long trumpets trumpeting you on to the, to the terrace, you know, announcing your arrival. You looked out over the entire city of Rome. Everybody's in togas. And immediately you were back, you know, at, at you know, 300 B.C. because that's what it felt like. One of the things I also remember from that meeting from a scientific standpoint is that it, I believe it was the first time anything like this had ever been done. Um, there was one of the members uh, um, who was in, a, in the operating room at Hopkins in the States, and here we are in Rome, and through the microscope, you could see his operative procedure. And you could ask questions in real time from the audience in Rome why he made that particular move, why, why he went to cut this membrane before that one. And it was like you were in the operating room. And it, it was, in, in my mind, uh, a, just a wonder, wonderful use of existing uh, technology that was in a phase of development, uh, which has gone a lot farther by now, for sure. Uh, but it was the first time that had ever been done. You mentioned Kirk Paco helping with this meeting. I think many of us also think of Kirk as playing a major role for, for ASRS. How, how did you find the people that you did? Because you have chosen amazing people to assist in leading the society going forward. It's an interesting question. Kirk, of course, he's the star on the top of the pyramid as far as his incredible intellect and abilities. The truth of it is we have so many amazingly talented members who you would have never heard about if they didn't have a venue like the Vitri Society ASRS because we were forbidden to join the other societies at the time. So our members are incredible. We didn't make them incredible. All we did was give them stage to display their talents, and they did. And also at a time when many of the societies were really male only, tell us how, how inclusion existed for ASRS going forward. Several of us uh, are married to physicians, and it was Sandy Grizzard who, who was married to a physician at the time and said, we need to... Uh, to uh, have female members of the society, because if we don't, my wife would kill me. <laughs> That's basically what happened. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, you know, of course, now as women are 50% of the medical schools, and uh, certainly I don't know what the percentage of women in ophthalmology uh, is at this moment, but it's certainly a lot higher than it was when we started. Uh, I think, it, you know, that's, that's kind of how it was. It was that, that was a big, a big thing, because the retina and macular societies didn't have any women. Uh, and also international members were, were was a big thing for us at that time, and that was innovative. What was it like when the three of you guys look um, look back and start to see the society changing, growing, and expanding? We brought in people who had different ideas, and that was difficult at points for us to accept that their ideas were frequently better than ours. But they were frequently better. And once again, we have to give Kirk Paco a lot of credit because when he 
wanted to promote something, an example being the evolution of the change from the Vitreous Society to the ASRS. He was very beautifully spoken. I remember I had some debate with Kirk at one of the board meetings, and I didn't like the title, the American Society of Retina Specialists, because we were already a well-formed international organization. And Kirk said, yeah, but everybody likes American things. And I said, okay. What were some of the other major changes that you guys saw through the you know last almost five decades? Initially, we did not want to have people from industry with booths and salesmanship and all that, because we didn't want to be beholden to uh, people who had other agendas than, than ours. Over the course of time, we'd have, I wouldn't say knockdown, drag out fights about having booths and people from industry there. But over the course of time, that turned out to be a real positive. That was a huge change. That to me was probably one of the biggest things that, that enabled us to move forward even further. And it gave us, quite, quite honestly, the, the funds to do some of the things that we now do, not just the uh, entertainment-wise, but to do things for our profession. I remember with David Williams as the president putting together a strategic plan and looking for a change in, in the infrastructure of the society um, for our, our societal staff. So can you tell me what that was like to watch and what impact do you think that made? As we grew, the offices moved from, from Roy's office to mine, and my office manager took over things. And she was managing it for quite a while, but it, the society kept growing. And then we got somebody who was even more, more full-time. And then David took over and he got uh, somebody to, and they moved the offices to Chicago. We were farming out things to, to like meeting planning and organizational stuff and, you know, all the things that you need to have to run a society. And David brought those in-house and Jill Blim brought more things in-house and it made things more efficient and, and the society could do more for the docs involved as well as for the patients. And then I guess the, the foundation came up and then Roy, I guess you were the first, you were the first um, president of the foundation, right? Is that, is that correct? Right. I can't remember. Right. Uh, you know, we felt that it would be a good idea to have a foundation and uh, we came up with the idea of helping the members educate their patients and have the foundation uh, be the backbone of this. And we raised some funds from industry. Uh, Jerry was helpful, very helpful with that. Uh, I'll, t I'll tell you just a, a quick little story. <laughs> uh, we were meeting with one of the companies and um, they said, yes, we will, we will give you $25,000. And Jerry stood up and he said, I want you, I, I want you to stand up and look under your chair. I want you to and find another it. zero. Boy, I actually got on my hand. There's probably 10 people at this conference table. Yeah. I got on my hands and knees under the table, like someone searching for a contact lens. And I'm going around wildly looking and everybody's saying, what are you looking for? And I said, we lost a zero. You lost a zero? Yeah, what is this $25,000? We want $250,000 for the foundation. And we all laughed 
and they gave it to us. They gave it to us. It's interesting that the foundation has really transitioned into that educational focus outside of the physicians and is also the support structure for our trying to memorialize the history of redness. So I've appreciated the foundation's impact going forward. It, it seems stronger than it has been. The other thing that I find interesting that's a little different is that the ASRS board now is almost the size of your first meeting. So what, <laughs> what do you think about, about the, the board size and how did that evolve and, and what role does that play? I was at the last board meeting, you know, as was Jerry. And um, I, I made a comment at the end of the meeting because uh, it, it, it really impressed me. The number of people that are on the board are not superfluous. They're all there because they have a mission. Uh, it, it's, it's all part of the direction of the society. But the thing that impressed me the most is the, the, the competence, the um, intensity, uh, the diversity of that board. And I think it reflects the best of the best. And it reflects our specialty. And I think it reflects medicine as a whole. It's, 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 a, it's a, very, a very good snapshot of what I feel medicine should strive to be doing today. I, I would like to circle back for a second about some of the academic stuff that, that, that uh, the society um, brought to the fore. And probably the first big thing that I remember, other than, you know, the general stuff that people talk about and present papers about, one was, uh, and he doesn't get much credit for this, is a fellow named Art Willis. He was the one that, that presented, the first to describe the closure of macula hole with vitrectomy. He never really pursued that further. And then obviously it was the guys in Sacramento that really did it, you know, Rob Wendell and, and Neil Kelly. That was a, a a, a big eye opener for not just our society, but for the whole field of ophthalmology, because when Kelly and Wendell presented their paper, the professors, and they presented it at the AAO, when it was presented, the big professor says, no, this can't be true. It can't be true because it was the, the, the general philosophy was macular holes. That's it. You're finished. You can't treat it. So that was one big thing that was really, really innovative, where people thought outside of the box and were doing things. They were the first, and it was Art Willis who presented that paper and then spurred everything forward. The second thing that, that, that really impressed me was the meeting in Montreal where anti-VEGF medications were coming forward, and there was Lucentis, and there was Avastin. And you, Tim, down, at, you know, down in Miami knew about this, and they... they and, it was presented at that meeting that, that Avastin really worked for, for macular degeneration. And that was a big thing because nobody really knew at that point. And the people from Genentech who were putting out Lucentis, making Lucentis, you know, and, and Lucentis hadn't been approved yet. They were like crazed because here was this cheap drug that they were putting out. They tried to make it unavailable to ophthalmologists, Avastin, because it was so, so much cheaper than the Lucentis. And then, and then what happened was, of course, you know, compromises were made. Everybody made nice politically, and Genentech became a supporter. But that was a, that was a really big. Those were two super big things that literally changed our specialty. And those were presented first, as far as I know, at our society. Last question: What do you think your legacy to Redna will be? Will it be the American Society of Redna Specialists? 
or do you see something beyond that? To me, um, uh, creating this society and, and having people carry it further than we ever thought would, we, we, it would go is, is the single greatest contribution that I personally have made to medicine in general. Because we, you know, in the military, they talk about for, force multipliers. You know, we, we've been able, or in the Peace Corps, they talk about, you know, teach, you can feed somebody, give somebody a fish, you feed them for a day, you teach them to fish, you, you feed them for a lifetime. We've been able to extend our, our, our abilities in this, uh, because of the society and train people, not just, uh, you know, in the States, but all over the world. And that, that, that is a huge a huge, that's the biggest contribution that I can think of that I've made singularly, you know, as a contribution. And it's because of, literally, it's because of these other two guys, because they, they push me forward and sometimes out, <laughs> but, they, but they, they've pushed, and I think we've pushed each other forward. I, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. Um, I really do feel that everybody it's nice if you can feel that you've made some sort of a contribution. And this is a contribution that I think has flourished and I think it will continue to flourish. And I feel, I feel very, very proud. Other than raising our children to be mature, successful adults, which is more than the three of us can say about ourselves, we're more proud of this organization than anything we've ever done in our lives. And I hope that the members will carry it to greater heights. The society has helped us and we've helped the society, but we have great friendship, the three of us and our wives as well. So it's, it's, been, it's been really wonderful. And we're, we're supportive of each other, not only um, professionally, but, but clearly even probably more importantly uh, in our personal lives. This has been a wonderful discussion. I appreciate your time today, Jerry, Roy, and Alan. Your vision for an inclusive society lives on today through the ASRS's work and mission. On behalf of the society and the entire Redna community, I would like to thank the three of you for your excellent work.